And God, I thank you so much for this day and the work that you are doing in our midst. And God, we know that uh, your grace is evident uh, in, in the life of this church. And so, and God, we just say thank you for uh, the work that you're doing. And I pray that uh, we will feel your prompting uh, to press into that and to uh, get involved, uh, to uh, really be truly a part of uh, the body of this church. And so um, with that, we say thank you and amen. Um, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is John Carroll. I'm uh, also one of the pastors here on staff. And um, you might have noticed that during our singing that uh, the, the screen was kind of going a little nuts. Um, and for that reason, we, we, I'm going to be talking about spiritual warfare today. And, and I think that our, um, our audiovisual is uh, experiencing a little bit of spiritual warfare. And, and so for that reason, I'm not even bothering with slides today, um, just so it's not a distraction. And so in case you're wondering, now John usually has like really cool, fun things for us to look at. Um, I do, but not today. And, but there's hope that we, uh, we have a plan in place to get it fixed. It should be resolved really soon. So... Um, with that, I just wanted to give you the heads up, okay? As far as the message goes, um, I'll start with this. On Tuesday, June 6, 1944, at 6.30 a.m., 5,000 ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches of France for the largest invasion in modern history, what we now refer to as D-Day. Some of the men who survived the invasion said they remember the steady stream of exhortations being broadcast over the ship intercoms in the final minutes as the ships approached the French beaches. Things like, fight to get your troops ashore, fight to save your ships, and if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourself. One said, we may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Another one, this is it, pick it up, put it on. You've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. Over 2,500 Americans died that day, many in a span of about 15 minutes. As the boats reached the coast, disembarking soldiers literally had to crawl over the bodies of other soldiers to get ashore. Stories like that make us grateful for the men and the women who have given their lives for the cause of freedom. But I share it to emphasize that the soldiers that approached the beach at Normandy that day had no delusions about what they were walking into. None of them thought they were going to an exotic beach in France for a vacation. They knew that they were walking headfirst into an attack of an enemy who wanted nothing more than to destroy them. At the end of Ephesians, Paul reveals the realities of life and shows us that we are in the midst of a battle with an enemy no less stringent and no less fierce. The tragedy is that many of us have no idea that we're even in a battle. We approach life as if it were a vacation rather than a war, like a playground rather than a battleground. But it's not. And you and I might wish all day long that it were. But that doesn't change the fact that we really are in a battle with a very real enemy. And unless we wake up to that, we'll probably end up as one of the casualties. How silly would it be to show up on D-Day with a towel and a beach ball? But that's how many of us are spiritually showing up for this battle. We're wrapping up our series, Made for More, today where we've walked through the letter 
that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And Paul concludes his letter in chapter 6 by addressing the spiritual battle that each and every one of us faces. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, some of you are like, are we about to become a weird church now? Um, maybe. But first, if the ushers would come forward and juggle the snakes at this time. Just kidding. Snakes come at the end of the service. Also kidding. Uh, but seriously, I want to start with the obvious. Paul believed in an unseen spiritual realm. And for what it's worth, so did Jesus. In fact, Jesus spent a large portion of his ministry in direct conflict with demons and summarized his whole ministry as proclaiming freedom to captives. Captives, of course, implies that there is someone or something you are captive to. So Paul just picks right up where Jesus left off. Throughout Ephesians, he refers to the believer's life as a struggle, as a fight, and as warfare against evil forces. And he's going to the end of his letter with, the, um, with a list of weapons that we need to engage in this warfare. Christian thinker C.S. Lewis said, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. Maybe you've known some Christians who fit into that first category. They attribute to Satan every inconvenient circumstance, a dead car battery, a traffic jam, a price increase in McDonald's. Oh, egg McMuffins are now $3. Satan's trying to ruin my budget so I can't tithe. But others commit to an equally dangerous error. They ignore him altogether. Not only does that ignore a significant theme in the scriptures, but it also means if what Jesus said is true... It would be like walking onto the beaches of Normandy with no clue there was an enemy with machine guns pointed right at you. And for what it's worth, Satan could care less whether or not you believe in him. Because he's not after your recognition. He's after your destruction. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls him an angel of light. Which means he'll transform himself into whatever form is best suited to deceive you even if it means you mistake him for an angel of God. It makes sense that in our world today, his best deceptions would not come from making someone else's eyes roll into the back of their head or start foaming at the mouth or levitating six feet above the bed, but from working stealthily, invisibly, behind the scenes. For this reason, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be alert and of sober mind." Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that shows me two things. First, Satan is like a hunter. And hunters don't care if you see them. In fact, they prefer that you didn't. And second, Peter calls Satan a lion. Which means Satan is part of the cat family. I see, I knew it. Cats are demons. But just because you can't see him doesn't mean he isn't there. 
1864, a physician by the name of Ignaz Simmelweis. It's a great name, isn't it? Ignaz Simmelweis. He stumbled onto a theory that we now call germ theory. In those days, everyone thought diseases would spontaneously generate in the body because there was something wrong with the body, like having too much blood or getting too hot or something like that. And so doctors would go between patients without ever washing their hands. True story. Plus, it was believed in those days that a real gentleman's hands didn't need washing because they were clean. And so doctors would go from working on the corpse of a dead person to delivering a baby which is why death rates of mothers and children in the hospitals were so incredibly high. Semmelweis began to suspect that they were carrying diseases with them and small particles invisible to the human eye. He didn't know what to call them, so he just called them microbes, which literally means little pieces of flesh. It seems so obvious to us now, but nobody in those days thought that way. He tested his theory by having just the interns wash their hands with water and a little bit of chlorine before delivering babies and found the mortality rates dramatically dropped. But even then, the doctors wouldn't accept the theory because the idea that all this destruction was caused by something you couldn't see just seemed inconceivable. At a famous conference, he pleaded with these doctors, gentlemen, for God's sake, just wash your hands. And nobody believed him. Even his wife didn't believe him. And Simmelweis, 20 years later, died in an asylum. And the point of the story is that many Christians are equally naive when it comes to what's happening in their lives because they're just as believing of what they can't see. But you can't, but can't you look around and see the evidence of demons everywhere? Pastor Andy Stanley in Atlanta says that if you want to see evidence of demons, you won't find it by looking through a microscope, but by looking in your rearview mirror, not at your kids. (laughs) But in the rearview mirror of life. I love you. Can't you look back And see how certain temptations were just too perfectly timed and specifically tailored for you to be merely coincidental? How the wrong person was put into your life at just the right time? Or the right questions were planted in your head to throw you off track? Or suspicion came into your heart just at the right time? Or the perfect storm seemed to happen in your marriage or your small group to really drive a wedge between you? Or maybe you can explain away all that. Well, the reason why my wife and I have these problems is because our personalities are ill-suited for each other. Or the reason why I struggle with these temptations is because my dad did too. But then every once in a while, you encounter something where something inside of you says, now that is evil. You know, acts of terrorism, parents killing their kids. Or you watch a documentary on the Holocaust and you see how embarrassed Germany is now. And they say, how could we have done something like that? It's because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and spiritual evil in high places. You see, God tells us about these things for two reasons in Ephesians 6. The first, in verse 18, is to make us more alert. When you recognize that there is more to your temptations than lust or doubts or relational problems, 
that there's an enemy strategizing your destruction, it will make you more aware. Amber talked last week about sleepwalking through life and Paul's exhortation for us to wake up to the dangers, to the pitfalls around us. And so Paul concludes the book of Ephesians by reminding them of the presence of these spiritual forces in an attempt to turn them once again from trusting in themselves. In verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then skipping ahead to verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And there's two phrases there that I want to address. The first one is stand firm. You can't escape this fight. Okay, you can't escape this fight. There's only two places in the Christian life where Paul says a Christian can and should flee. And that is the love of money and sexual immorality. So when it comes to monies and honeys, you got to skedaddle. Every... Oh, yes, I did. It rhymed. It was good. Every, you know, things sound way funnier in my mind when I... Okay. Everywhere else in life, okay... You have to learn to stand firm because you can't escape. Listen, you can't protect your family from Satan by limiting your kids' exposure to the outside world. You have to learn to stand firm in the battle, not think you can always run from it. And here's the second phrase. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And this has nothing to do with your power, which is a recurring theme in Ephesians. It's about God's power that is at work in you. In fact, in this battle, your strengths are more often liabilities because those are the places you forget to depend on God and lean on his strength. In the New Testament, Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit. And the Greek word for flesh is sarx. It's spelled S-A-R-X, sarx. And when Paul uses that word, he's saying that we are relying on our own efforts, our own flesh to accomplish great things. And then he contrasts that with relying on the spirits, which through God, all things are possible. Our flesh, our sarks will let us down. So we must rely on God's power to equip us for battle. And Paul tells us about seven pieces of spiritual armor where you apply the gospel of dependence on God's grace to an area of vulnerability or weakness in your life. And so with that backdrop, uh, let's look at each piece of armor, and there are seven of them, uh, so we're going to move quickly, okay? So here's the first piece. This is from verses 13 and 14. Paul says, take up the belt of truth. Now, your belt goes around your waist. It holds all of your weapons and the rest of your armor in place. Now, as far as the metaphor goes, this one's really important because no one wants to go into battle with their pants down. Amen? Well, what does Paul mean by the belt of truth? Two things. Well, we always think of truth as primarily a what, okay? But in Scripture, it's first a who. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
So Paul's saying, gird yourself up with Jesus. Make your identity in Christ the center of your life. Over the years, I've witnessed people make their identity their career or their family or their body or their academic or their athletic prowess. Well, what happens when those things fade and come crashing down? Their identity comes crashing down with it. The reality is your identity is rooted in who God says you are. And for disciples of Jesus, Christ is at the center of it all. The second thing the belt of truth implies is that you have grounded your perspective on everything in your life based on what God says. Things like love and generosity and grace and self-sacrifice. Question, how do you determine what is true and right in your life? For some people, they rely on this internal compass. You know, just what feels right? You know, they let God influence, but at the end of the day, it's what they feel is right. And for others, they follow the whims of popular opinion. Maybe that's their friends or maybe a coworker, uh, maybe a popular celebrity. The only way to escape the deception of the enemy is to let the word of God shape your thinking, to set your minds on things above. That's what Paul talks about in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Set your mind on things above. Here's another question. Do you know the word of God? Do you know the word of God? Friends, these are not just doctrines to learn. These are means of survival. Wherever you are not covered in the truth of Scripture, you are exposed to the attack of the enemy. Satan's first attack on us in the garden was to say, has God really said this? And for centuries now, he's not been able to come up with anything better. But the thing is, he hasn't had to. His goal is to get you to do one of two things with the Word of God. Either doubt it or neglect it. And he doesn't care which one because both of them are going to have the same effect in your life. Second piece of armor. Paul says in verse 14, take up the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate covers your vital organs. So what does he mean by covering your vital organs with righteousness? Well, again, for Paul, being covered with righteousness first means embracing our reality and our identity in Christ. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 4 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We often invite people to invite Jesus into their heart because we know the heart is the most vital organ. It influences so much of what we do, which is why Satan is always trying to sneak his way into your heart and attack you from the inside out. Maybe you have a bad habit that you know is sinful, but you don't take seriously enough to break. Maybe it's a temptation that you can't say no to. Maybe there's somebody that you won't forgive, a bad relationship you won't let go, or just an area in your life not under God's control, like your anger or how you use your money. Whatever part of your life is not aligned with God's word will be Satan's focal point of attack in your life. What do you think that would be for you? And let me ask it this way. If you knew a year from now, if you knew a year from now, 
that Satan was going to bring you down, what would be the thing he uses to do it? What would he use in your life today? Third piece of armor. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is in verse 15. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, I've heard that the sword of the Spirit, which we'll get to in a minute, is the only offensive weapon in the Christian arsenal. And that's not true. Your feet are offensive weapons, too, because they carry you forward into battle. Paul says we overcome Satan by going on the offense with the gospel. This includes sharing the gospel with people, with your words, and also with how you live your life. And that's how we can overcome Satan's work in others. But that, not only does that thwart the enemy's work in others' lives, but it stops Satan's work in ours. We're the easiest prey for Satan when we're bored. And that's how King David fell into adultery. He was home, disengaged from the battle, when everybody else was at war. Everyone was out fighting. David was at home lounging. And that's when he noticed Bathsheba. Some of us are sitting ducks for Satan because we're bored. And that's what we've been talking about this past, um, this past several weeks. You know, we are made for more. We're made for more. So get engaged in God's mission so Satan won't have much opportunity in your life. Fourth piece. Above all, and by the way, this is the most important. Above all, taking the shield of faith by which we extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one. Verse 16. This is really a way of summing up all the other pieces. Satan's main weapons are the lies he throws, these fiery darts right into our hearts. Listen, you're not supposed to try to outreason those darts, to do some fancy footwork, get away from those darts. That won't cut it. You're supposed to hide from those darts behind your shield which means coming against them in your mind with what God has told you in the Gospels. So Satan tells you, you're no good, you're not smart, you're pathetic. After what you did, do you think God still loves you? You can never make a difference. He'll never use you. Your marriage will be bad. You'll never be a good parent. You'll always be sick. You'll never get out of debt. And then, boom, you put up the shield Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Greater is he that is within me than he who is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God is working all things together for my good because he loves me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. And I can assure you, when you get through a montage like that, Satan will not be anywhere near. Fifth piece. Take up the helmet of salvation, verse 17. Again, this echoes in a new way some of what he has already said. But specifically, your head is where you think. Paul is telling us to let the truth about our salvation and God's grace in our lives permeate our minds. There are two ideas I tell myself all the time. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. 
because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. There is nothing I could do to make him love me anymore. And there is nothing I have done to make him love me any less. And the kingdom of God is never in jeopardy, never in doubt. It is a reality that I can rely on. I can count on it. Six peace. And taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we're still in verse 17 here. Now we transition to exclusively offensive weapons. We've already talked about our shoes. Now we've got our sword, which is the word of God. Of course, the word has been in each of the others, but he's telling us again to master the book, which gives us the ability to counteract Satan's lies. Your ability to overcome Satan is directly proportionate to your knowledge and application of God's word. So learn it. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Act on it. In order to be a good disciple maker, you must first be a good disciple, which means living out the word of God in our everyday lives. And finally, in verse 18, Paul says, and praying at all times in the Spirit. Many times people don't include prayer in the list of weapons, but it is. It's our main one. Notice that prayer is not something we do only in preparation for battle, but what you do when you are dressed for battle. And I say this because we often treat prayer like it's only a preparation for ministry. According to Paul, prayer is the ministry. For all of us, it should be the primary way we see ourselves fighting. Bold prayer is how you take the message of the gospel and do battle in the world and in your life. So Paul's last words are are to tell us that, yes, life is a battlefield. But we can and should be confident that we have a God who is willing to fight for us and fight with us. Ultimately, these pieces of armor are simply learning to apply the gospel in your life. They are not new spiritual strategies to learn, but learning to cover your life in God's strength. And the, the way to fight Satan is not to engage Satan, but is to cover your life with the gospel. In Luke 11, Jesus told a parable about a man who had an evil spirit living in his house. He managed to drive it out and clean up the house But during that time, the man's cleaning up his life. The demon goes out and finds seven more demons to come back. And they moved into the man's house, and the last state of the man was worse than the first. So Jesus says, when you drive a strong man, which is the demon, out of a house, you need someone stronger than him to keep that man out. The strong man is Satan. The stronger man is Jesus. You can't defeat Satan and keep him out of your house in your own strength. You need to fill your house with the stronger man. You need to cover your life with these armor pieces of the gospel. The way to resist Satan is not to engage Satan. It's to get filled with the presence of Jesus, the stronger man. There's a pastor named Charles Spurgeon, lived a long time ago, and he once said, The preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. How do you get the devil out of your home, your head, your heart, your church? Preach Christ. 
Teach Christ. Dwell on Christ. And let Christ dwell in you. And as Christians, we don't have to fight for victory over Satan, but from a victory that Jesus has already won and given to us as a gift. Amen? The very last verse in Ephesians, Paul says this, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. God's love is the only incorruptible, everlasting, undisputable, all-powerful, unchangeable thing in this corrupted, fallen, ever-changing world. We love God because God first loved us. And when we love God and we love others as ourselves, we become kingdom bearers, kingdom bringers, where up there comes down here. Y'all, we are made for more. In this life, there are battles being fought all the time. But as the church, when we put on the whole armor of God, we can win. And this year, in 2019, Hope Covenant Church is planning to do some bold things, some risky things for God to help bless other people. And Satan would love nothing more than to take us down. In this day, in this week, in this year, let's all put on the full armor of God, locked arm in arm as we head into battle. I can't do this on my own. We can't do this on our own. But together, with reliance on God's powerful spirit, we can accomplish great things and bring honor and glory to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, there are spiritual things happening, spiritual warfare happening all around us. And the evil one is doing everything he can to work his way into our hearts in order to cause us to stumble and lose faith in you. So my prayer today is that we would not rely on our own strength, our own flesh, our own sarks, but instead rely on your spirit and your power. God, I pray that we, as your church and as your children, would put on your holy armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes. May we take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, and do so with prayer before and during the battle, and boldly proclaiming the gospel of your incorruptible love, your peace that passes all understanding, and your truth that sets us free. Indeed, we are made for more. So as we journey into this year and beyond, would you awaken our senses to your calling in our life so that we may use the gifts you've blessed us with in order to see your name lifted high. And we pray these things. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.